What's up, guys, and welcome back to the show. CoinKite and River are the two awesome Bitcoin companies which I'm grateful to have supporting this podcast. If you know all about them already, skip ahead 60 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite is the maker of what many Bitcoiners believe to be the gold standard Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. If you've been delaying on setting up your self-custody solution, I strongly advise that you take action, as 2022 was once again littered with examples which prove the adage, not your keys, not your coins. The cold card is also compatible with several of the most popular multi-sig solutions if you're interested in exploring that approach to custodying your Bitcoin. If gifting physical Bitcoin in the upcoming year is what you're after, the SATS card is a great way to do so. It's like an open dime, but you can load and sweep it 10 times with just a mobile phone, and it comes in a handy and familiar credit card form factor. Finally, the BlockLock Micro has recently hit the market for those of us that get a potentially strange, but absolutely understandable, satisfaction at keeping an eye on the current block height, sats per USD exchange rate, and much else. To check it all out, visit CoinKite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning services enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their dedication to service, stellar team, and in-house approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Jameson, how are you? Not bad. Keeping busy. Even in the bear markets, there's always something going on. Yeah, well, I mean, bear markets are usually the uh, the time where all the building gets done, right? Because people aren't celebrating and on a high about the price and just watching it tick up and imagining how wealthy they're becoming every day. So, um, you know, these are the times when I guess the base, the foundation gets set for the next uh, run up and all the things everyone will be talking about next time we we get we garner that kind of attention. Absolutely. So um, just to set things up here, maybe we can do two things. One, um, for people that may not be aware of who you are, you know, a little bit about yourself and your background. And then um, you used to, uh, recently I've been put, posting a Calendly link and basically just saying, if you want to come on the show for a chat, if you want to discuss something, book yourself in, let me know what you want to talk about. And, you know, if everything is kosher, then we'll go for it. And that's what you did. And um, I suspect we'll talk about you know, maybe a little bit of a broader range of things today than, than what you mentioned, but kind yeah, of yeah. what you want to talk about and why it is you wanted to, uh, you know, to do so. Well, yeah. And, you know, I reached out because a, I realized that we've never actually had a discussion, uh, other than maybe a few seconds when we, we crossed paths at a conference and, um, you know, I, it, my impression is that you, you have more of a, you know, philosophical, uh, leaning on a lot of stuff, which I would say most of the people who interview me only stick to the really technical stuff. So it's always good to have something different. You know, I don't like repeating myself uh, every time I go on a podcast. I, I, I feel that 100%. And you're right, definitely. So some of the things we discussed today will be way out of my wheelhouse, but you know, maybe you're the perfect one to dumb it down for me and we can have a, you know, a reasonably interesting discussion about it all. So do you want to go with a bit of background on yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I've got about 10 years of experience in Bitcoin. Um, spent the first couple of years just sort of meandering around, you know, trolling the Bitcoin talk forums, Reddit, uh, trying to understand what this thing was. And after a couple of years, I got interested enough that I, I wanted to dig deeper. 
And so I actually forked Bitcoin Core in 2015, created a project I called Statoshi. And uh, to be clear, this is not an altcoin. Uh, you know, it, it retains all but about 500 lines of the same code as Bitcoin Core. It, it really, it only adds a few hundred lines of code, which are for metrics and instrumentation purposes. Because what I wanted to do was I wanted to take the open ethos of Bitcoin and bring more transparency to what was happening inside of the actual Bitcoin node itself. So this was kind of leveraging a lot of the uh, tools and frameworks that I had been using as a, a sort of DevOps software engineer uh, in my pre-Bitcoin work life and uh, just helped to facilitate more discussion and you know, help both developers and, and really anyone who is interested better understand these internal operations. And, you know, I would say that was a success. Um, Satoshi got referenced by a number of different developers over the years when they were talking about, you know, potential improvements uh, to Bitcoin and uh, you know, things like performance. And uh, after really only about a year of doing that as my first project, I w went full time. And I spent the next three years working at BitGo, uh, where I was basically working on infrastructure. Uh, so BitGo was providing this uh, multi-signature Bitcoin wallet that was really was more enterprise focused, you know, try to uh, make it harder for the hot wallets on exchanges to get hacked and drained and um, learned a lot more about nodes and infrastructure during that time. Um, then the, the scaling wars happened. We had a lot of internal strife, even within people at the company. It was a lot of fun uh, drama that happened there. And then in early 2018, I made a slight pivot and uh, basically decided that I wanted to take a lot of what I had learned and apply it to uh, personal use rather than enterprise use of you know self-custody. And so that's when I joined CASA. That's what we've been doing now for five years, uh, basically trying to make it easier for non-technical people to securely self-custody their coins. And, you know, it's a really complicated space. I mean, security in general, especially cybersecurity, is it's, you know, constantly dynamic changing environment. There is just a million ways that you can screw up and, and you know, we wanted to make it so that non-technical people can fairly easily get themselves into a position not only where you know, they have a, a secure setup but where they can actually feel comfortable and confident that they are able to create and maintain the setup itself i think that that has been one of the primary pieces of friction that has held back uh, self-custody in this space. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, all too often people, you know, select whatever setup they end up selecting and then they kind of like close their eyes and hope for the best and hope that it's there for them when they need it <clears throat> rather than becoming extremely comfortable with it and familiar with it and testing and backing up and restoring and, and all the different things you have to do to basically have that level of peace of mind over your setup and 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 your degree of security let's say um correct me if i'm wrong the bitco was kind of on the on the other side of the 
the fork, the, the SegWit issue, right? Um, yeah, yeah. The, well, the CEO uh, was a signatory on the New York agreement, right. which I, I believe that was the like SegWit 2x quote unquote compromise. And, you know, right. that it was funny, too, because that this all happened while I was in the same building at the consensus conference and, you know, I didn't even know about it until after they published the like CoinDesk article or whatever they're like. Well, that's kind of what I, what, what I wanted to ask, like what, to the extent that you can share, of course, but what were some of the internal discussions within Bitco at that time that, you know, again, seems like you were out of the maybe final decision, but that you think may have led to support of that versus, you know, UASF or, yeah, so, you know, the New York agreement was born out of frustration from the large enterprise providers, you know, mainly the exchanges and then some of the companies like us that supported the exchanges and their operations. And, you know, there had been a lot of, you know, operational issues because of, you know, congestion on the network, uh, you know, backlogs of unconfirmed transactions. I mean, I spent countless hours myself, um, both you know personally dealing with and doing outreach to different companies and even mining pools when i would find what i considered to be very naive practices and sort of transaction construction and utxo management that would create these like really gnarly uh long chains of unconfirmed transactions so like i had a really interesting uh front seat to seeing why these companies were so frustrated and um, at the risk of sort of being generalization, uh, a, a decent portion of that was their own fault because they were doing things naively, like they weren't putting in the work to improve their own usage of the Bitcoin network. And this was because they were viewing the Bitcoin network as a resource that should just work. You know, they should just be able to like make an API call and make it work because this is how like business to business, you know, enterprise level internet companies operate is you you build functionality you're using uh development kits and and apis of other enterprise grade parties and you usually have service level agreements and and generally like if you're you're paying good money for what you're doing then you want to be able to just hit it as hard as you can and assume that you're going to have you know like five nines 99.999 percent you know reliability that whatever you're trying to do is going to go through bitcoin doesn't give a shit <laughs> you know it's like uh you have to work within the constraints of bitcoin uh if you start to have problems the onus is on you to modify your behavior uh and so this was just i think it was a confounding uh to a lot of these enterprise minded people and you know i understood this myself uh, and you know this could be a bit contentious but like i was um before segwit 2x i was actually a proponent of bitcoin xt and this was in late 2014 early 2015 i think like right around when i started to go full-time bitcoin and bitcoin xt was a proposal i believe to increase the block size limit to eight megabytes um the short version for why i was a fan of that was because up until that point 
I had been working as a um, distributed like cloud data analysis engineer, uh, by which I mean I was responsible for writing and maintaining jobs that would run across 100 petabyte scale clusters of data. You know, this was for an online marketing company that was sending out 100 million emails a day and generating a ton of raw analytics that my job was to to create uh, you know, scalable applications that could ingest all of that data and make it easy for marketers to like better target and segment uh, pieces uh, of their audience to just improve the return on their investment in our mm-hmm. service. And, and so from my perspective and from most of these corporate uh, engineers and, and business people's perspective, and especially from Mike Hearn's perspective, who was one of the main proponents of um, Bitcoin XT because he was a Google engineer. He was doing similar type of stuff as me. The, the perspective was one of capacity planning that you had to not only have sufficient capacity to be able to meet the sort of ongoing regular demand of your customers, but you had to have massive excess capacity in order to plan for the spikes. So uh, a real world example of what we had to do at my company that was called Bronto Software is that because we were primarily targeting online retailing marketers, we had several known uh, times of the year, like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, um, you know, various shopping holidays, where we had to plan to have you know, 300, 400, 500 percent excess capacity uh, for those days in comparison to a sort of normal day. And so that was because we would get burned if we didn't. And Mm. we would have these massive backlogs and and timeouts and database lockups. And it would just, it would turn into this nightmare fuel for the people like myself who were responsible for the ongoing operation of the system. So, you know, long story short, that all comes around when you start applying that type of perspective and logic to a system like Bitcoin, which once again, it doesn't give a shit what you're trying to do with it. Uh, You cannot manipulate it you cannot uh you know ask for more capacity in a straightforward fashion and and so you know eventually that all bubbles up and it turns into the multi-year scaling debate and then we get into these really interesting issues of like governance and how the actual protocol uh works and can change and um you know, people trying to apply flawed models like democracy uh, onto the system. And so, you know, it was a fun time. It was a fascinating time. And, and it meant that we had what really was a civil war. Uh, we had, you know, brothers fighting each other. I mean, we had like, uh, you know, Charlie Lee and his brother on complete opposite sides of this. We had um, the CTO of my company and the CEO of my company on complete opposite sides. And they were, it was, this was not just closed room discussions. This is like, you know, arguing publicly on Twitter in front of the entire world. And, you know, 
to the average outsider looking at like, why are these two guys who are co-founders of the same company having a public argument, you know, at this level of strife. So, you know, fascinating stuff that you don't really see happen that often. Totally. And so were you still at BitGo once the New York agreement was effectively like rebuked? And and if so, yep. what was the the response or the outcome or to that? Yeah, well, you know, it was... <laughs> It was the most, um, like, I guess, dying with a whimper uh, type of end to the whole thing, because we spent a decent amount of engineering effort actually uh, writing tools to prepare for Segwit2x to happen, because there were all of these issues around replay attacks and having to like be able to build, you know, taint into your UTXOs to make sure that they wouldn't be valid on both forks. And, um, and then it was like one and a half or two weeks before the supposed fork activation date. And our CEO comes in and he's like, well, FYI, we're calling it off. <laughs> it was like, just sort of seemed like out of nowhere because it was this level of brinksmanship mm. where they seemed like, like they were not going to take any sort of constructive feedback or, uh, you know, be willing to uh, be more patient. Uh, and, and I think it really, it just came to a head of like, it was generally a bluff and like most of the people around it didn't fully comprehend all of the ramifications and they, they believed that they could just sort of vote their way into a new Bitcoin. Um, and I think eventually enough of them realized the error of their ways. And right. I think part of it may have also had to do with like, there were some futures markets trading at the time. Mm. And I think like the economic majority made it quite clear that we did not want Segwit 2X. Yeah. I remember that. Were you were you vocal on either side, either in the company or externally at the time? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very anti Segwit two X, uh, and it was weird because, um, I I believe that as part of the New York agreement, we had committed to like helping aid with like the testing um, and the you know deployment of the actual Segwit two X software, which was just you know a fork of Bitcoin Core with a very minimal change set of code applied to it. And you know, nobody could actually force us to put a lot of effort into it. And, I, and that's another, another reason it was kind of dead on arrival is that despite all of this supposed public uh, support from all of these companies, I didn't actually see a whole, whole lot of engineering support being applied to the Segwit2x project. Mm. And you may recall it ended up, you know, failing to activate. Like even if if they hadn't called it off, it would have blown up and failed to activate because it was so buggy. Right. Um and this is a I'm asking all these questions one because I'm interested, but two, I think it'll be relevant to some of the topics we discuss later on, but um why was it that you supported what you ended up supporting and what do you think would have been, I mean, total speculation, of course, but what do you think would have been the consequences had the New York agreement succeeded and we had gone with Segwit 2X? That might be a tough one to yeah. answer, but, you know, if you have any thoughts on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote some lengthy blog posts on why I, I felt like SegWit was a good path forward and, and that soft forks in general were a better path forward. Um, and this, once again, it has to do with just the way that the network operates, that it's not a single entity where you can request you know, upgrades to happen and you know some sort of service level agreement to be followed. Um, you know, I had been watching node metrics for many years at that point. And one of the things I could see is, you know, how long does it normally take someone to even update their node software? And, you know, some people go years without updating. Like it, it can be years. I think last I checked, usually within one or two years, I think most people update their software at least once. Uh, but you know, some people really do run it as a sort of set it and forget it service. And there is no, and this is by design, there is no like automatic software update mechanism. There's not even really a notification mechanism. You know, there's there's no central authority who can send out uh, a message that says, hey, you should update. <laughs> uh, there was at one time an alert mechanism in the uh, the Bitcoin Core software, but that got removed because it posed its own like security vulnerabilities and risks. Mm. I mean, Node software can can effectively do that, but you're talking about from the like from Bitcoin Core, I'm assuming. Right. Uh, you know, in order for the security model to be strongest, you can't have really any sort of automatic update mechanism because right. that means that there's something that's running that could be compromised to pull down a malicious update. Mm -hmm. um, and so what about, I mean, cause you mentioned how people within these bigger companies, they were kind of used to things operating in a different way, you know, that interacting with technology that, what's the right way to put it? it was more responsive to their whims or their demands and now they're coming up against a form of technology that's almost the reverse it's like no you conform to this because this is you know a type of perhaps the most absolute sort of technology that people have encountered where it's not su subject or susceptible to change like other things you might have worked with are it, it, do you think that's part of uh, people's initial perhaps misunderstanding about what they're even dealing with here in Bitcoin? It's like, and this is even, perhaps is the, even the process of discovering what Bitcoin is. I mean, I, I would consider all of these discussions that are being had and these proposals, proposals for upgrades as literally the process of defining what Bitcoin is and things get rejected and accepted based on like, how that negotiation happens. And I say negotiation almost metaphorically because it's not happening mm -hmm. explicitly a lot of the times. But I mean, what what are your thoughts on that sort of framing about how people have to uh, think differently about what this is and how to engage it and how best to use it and or contribute to it? Yeah, so, you know, everybody comes in and approaches this thing that we call Bitcoin with their own perspective and they will you know, try to build or apply their own logical models to it. And I, I think 
nobody gets it right the first time. You apply a model to it, and then eventually your model gets shattered. And um, you know this has happened definitely from like the governance uh, standpoint. I see it happen, or at least when I was you know working at Bitco and I was you know watching these new companies come on board, um, I would see once again these sort of naive mistakes where very often a company would would onboard with us, you know, they'd get their API keys set up and they would immediately just start slamming us with transactions you know at a rate higher than the entire network could even account for and it was because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing like they didn't know about all of these constraints they figured it was like any other api and you just start going for it um so that model you know, it gets broken very quickly whenever you try to do anything that's like outside of the, the constraints of the system. And then it just, the deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole you go, the more and more uh, aspects of your mental model get broken. And, you know, this is something I've spent a decade doing, trying to understand, you know, how should we think about Bitcoin? And I almost think of it as less of a, a sort of defining Bitcoin and it's more of an exploratory process of discovering, uh, you know, how this thing actually works. Because, I mean, the, the, the code, the, the, the distribution of power in many different ways, it's already there. It's just very hard to uh, quantify. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. You know, one of the things that I think about Bitcoin is, you know, the idea of limitation, which is obvious, right? Because there's, you know, 21 million hard cap is a very overt, explicit limitation. And a lot of people would probably agree that um, Bitcoin derives a lot of its utility. It's very unique for that reason. But, you know, in in the realm of software, you know, a, lo a lot of these limitations may not be absolute. They could, they might be absolute in a consensus manner, but not in a, well, not in an absolute manner. Like some, these things can be changed. It's just a matter of, I think, how much do we recognize the value of certain self-imposed limitations? Maybe we can put it like that. You know, and that's its own rabbit hole in itself. I mean, you can go down that rabbit hole in philosophy and theology and all sorts of different areas. Like what is the the role of limitation in permitting uh, creation, you know, and permitting things to flourish. Like if there was no limitation anywhere, then everything would just be goo. Right. So there's, there's a, there's a, there's a definite value in limitation. I think part of the, well, perhaps an aspect of wisdom is determining, and this is on a personal level, a technological, a social, what are the most generative limitations? What are the most beneficial limitations that when imposed actually allow for the greatest degree of freedom and cooperation and harmony and wealth creation and those sorts of things. And I think, you know, that's, well, again, we'll probably address it um, in some of the the proposals that we're going to discuss here. Just before we do that, before we move into it, um, and you can obviously respond to the comment I just made if you like, but I'm curious, what was your first, like, what drew you into Bitcoin initially? What, what's your rabbit hole story? And you mentioned kind of how you started, but not what really triggered your interest uh, initially. Yeah, um, 
Nothing particularly interesting, I guess. Uh, you know, I'm a computer scientist uh, as as my background, and I spent a lot of time on nerdy sites. Uh, I'm pretty sure Slashdot was where I ended up hearing about it, not, not for the first time, but uh, it was probably the third or the fourth time, and I realized it kept coming up because I, like most people, dismissed it several times as a fad that was going to end in tears and everybody was going to lose their money and, and be mm. crying. And so, you know, after it kept coming up, um, I realized, hey, why hasn't this thing been demolished? Like, how is it still operating? So I read the white paper and, you know, it was straightforward enough that, you know, with my computer science background, I realized that this was solving a problem. First of all, it was a problem I had never thought of. Uh, but then once I looked at, you know, the Byzantine general's problem, and then I saw the solution to it, it blew my mind because it was solving <laughs> it in what I would consider to be a completely ass backwards way. And by that, I mean, uh, we as computer scientists are trained in understanding data structures and algorithms and how to um, architect them in such a way to maximize the performance and the efficiency because this kind of goes back to what you're talking about. You know, there's, there's limitations and constraints. Uh, we are working within limitations and constraints generally of the hardware uh, that is running whatever software we are writing. And, you know, even uh, me being a guy who is running on uh, these huge, uh, you know, 100 petabyte data clusters, you know, that was some pretty awesome hardware, especially for over 10 years ago. Um, there were still constraints. And, you know, one of the things that I struggled with, for example, was to get some of these jobs to run in you know, less than 24 hours because I needed to make sure I was updating all these metrics at least on a daily basis. And, you're, and it's very easy to write naive algorithms that perform very poorly. Uh, it's very hard to continually optimize things, uh, especially when you're, you're constantly fighting against uh, scaling problems and like nearly unbounded data growth. Uh, and you, your expectation is to continue to provide, you know, the same uh, response and performance uh, despite having, you know, higher workload and, and in many cases, a not similar like increase in the level of resources that you have at your disposal. So, uh, you know, getting back to the white paper, this was ass backwards because it was it was purposefully inefficient. Like it's the least efficient database that I've come across in my entire life. And you know, that holds true. And I've said this countless times, and especially this is why I just laugh whenever I see, you know, the enterprise blockchain folks uh, talking about how they've invented this great new database. And I'm like, how much do you know about databases? Like I've, I've got, you know, work experience with probably a dozen different types of databases over the period of my career, uh, both relational and non-relational. And, and blockchain is the shittiest database ever if you're you know, trying to use it in some sort of enterprise scale thing. You know, this is, it is, but it is purposefully inefficient. And that's because unlike everything that I had ever looked at or or built in my entire life um 
you know, Satoshi designed Bitcoin not for efficiency, but for robustness. And so you have to flip everything on its head. And so, you know, it, it still gives me tingles just thinking about it, is that, uh, you know, this, this it just was mind blowing that, you know, you could even do this, that you could think in such a way. And, and it opened up my mind to the possibilities of what this really means, because I had, I had never even thought in terms of centralization and decentralization. I had always thought pure performance, you know, minimize cost, maximize efficiency. And, and now when I started to realize that wasn't the only way of looking at designing systems, um, you know, I, I started to understand that you know, this could empower individuals. And, and so actually, you know, just a couple of years later, when I decided to go full time into Bitcoin, I actually told myself at the time that I needed a mission statement. You know, I had spent my entire career up to that point uh, working on, I mean, you could call them interesting technical scaling challenges, but like I was I never had an, an interest in what my company was actually doing and selling. Mm -hmm. It was a paycheck. Um, it, it, it paid well. It, it gave me interesting challenges, but it wasn't something that I found personally fulfilling. And so I decided that from then on out, my career was going to be based on using my skills as a technologist, as a computer scientist, to build systems that helped empower individuals. Because I felt like um, it was kind of fighting the tide. Uh, is, is this true for a lot of things in terms of like security and privacy and whatnot? It was, it was that, you know, the average person tends to choose convenience at the expense of everything else. Mm -hmm. And so unless we focus on making the, the tools that give you more power, more convenient, then it's, it's pretty much inevitable that convenience is going to happen in a, a centralized fashion where you're, you're giving up a lot of security and privacy. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that certainly seems to be the the way the internet has gone up to this point. It, it's starting to seem like Bitcoin, in conjunction with other technologies, are starting to provide opportunities that might help turn the tide. Um, were you, you know, ideologically aligned, so to speak? I mean, you mentioned you just mentioned freedom, so that was obviously, or it seemed, it sounds like that was an issue that perhaps you were above average aware of because you know you drop the term freedom to a lot of people and they're like what are you talking about i'm i'm free <laughs> google doesn't own me you know my money is safe in the bank you know that whole shtick so when you you know it sounds like you were more well it sounds like you appreciated the technology but i think necessary to fully appreciate it you would have to have kind of an ideological alignment with the notion of freedom itself and perhaps how much it had been uh well, how scarce it might be in certain domains in society today. And so was mm -hmm. that also an element where you, you know, I don't know, libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, uh, you know, these sorts of yeah. things. And they, they were in everything, right? So, um, you know, I was, I was raised a good old Southern boy. Um, you know, my, my family lineage goes back centuries in uh, North and South Carolina. And, uh, you know, Bible belts. Uh, I, you know, I was taken to church every year uh, or every week for 18 years, uh, you know, until I left the home, um, you know, I, I got my full 
you know, stereotypical indoctrination into all things, uh, you know, Southern and uh, you know, definitely like, uh, I guess, wasp, you know, uh, wasp style lifestyle. What's wasp? Um, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And um, by the time I got into middle school, I was starting to to question a lot of that. I started going a lot harder on uh, the science and and trying to understand like a lot of this stuff seems like it's conflicting with things that I've been told over the years. And, uh, and so, you know, when I, up until I was probably 19 or 20, I was very, uh, uh, conservative slash right wing because that's what my whole family had been. That was the only thing that I had really known. I ended up going to an incredibly liberal university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and uh that that swung me to be very liberal minded you know i i got let's see i voted for george w bush when i was like 18 or 19 that was my first ever election and then um you know 2001 9 11 attacks the wars all of that shit happened and i was like why the fuck are we bombing all of these people who I don't feel like they've harmed me. You know, why don't you just like target the really small group of people who actually committed the attacks? Like, why are we causing such de devastation and why do I have to pay for it with my tax dollars? So, you know, I got very disillusioned with the, you know, uh, war machine. And um, I, I know I ended up voting for Obama the first time around. I felt like, oh, this guy, he's like the antithesis, you know, uh, these these liberal folks, they might be on to something. Um, and then, of course, I watched him perpetuate the same shit. And I'm like, you lied. Damn it. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was like, OK, fool me once, uh, fool me twice. What the fuck do I do now? And so I very you know, naturally progressed into libertarianism. Um, and so I, I certainly already considered myself a libertarian at that point, uh, though. I was, I guess I was registered unaffiliated, but I was definitely voting libertarian whenever possible. But then, you know, Bitcoin comes around, I start spending a few years going down the rabbit hole there. And especially as I start to learn more about the history of the cypherpunks, I go just full on anarcho-capitalist and I stop voting completely. I'm like, why am I even wasting my time listening to these, uh, these liars? No, I can't trust. And uh, the only thing I can be sure of is that they're going to follow their own incentives, not whatever my incentives are that I hope that they're going to represent me about. So I figure, you know, politics is a waste of my time. It's far more effective for me to use my very specialized skills to uh, create alternative systems that are not as constrained by all of uh, the you know, political and government infrastructure that's out there. Right. Now, again, I mean, this is a, a rabbit hole of its own, but just do you, I mean, this is a common discussion topic in in this space uh, for sure. And I think a lot of people either were or became disillusioned as you just uh, described. And um, I think a lot of people also, once you start learning about Bitcoin, you kind of realize, well, if this, you know, becomes global money or if even 
if it doesn't, to the extent you know, it, it provides a type of solution whereby it's far more difficult for the state to siphon off your wealth effectively, either surreptitiously via inflation or directly via taxation. I mean, you can both of those things can be far more easily avoided with a money like Bitcoin. And so then the question becomes, well, how does such an institution uh, continue to fund themselves if more and more people operate in that way? And, you know, the the punchline is basically, well, they won't be able to fund themselves to the same extent, and therefore they will atrophy to some degree you know, over, the, of, over the course of time. Um, and we'll end up having smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller governance, government until the degree to which they are paid for their services is commensurate with whatever the services they provide. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that we deem that the market can't in some sort of emergent manner uh, construct in its, you know, by itself. And of course, I don't, I, you know, who knows what that level is, but is that kind of how you think about the evolution of governance in an increasingly Bitcoin denominated world? Should we be moving in that direction? Yeah, I mean, with something like the sovereign individual thesis, um, I would say that we are trending in the right direction. Um, it would seem to me that like there are already sovereign individuals. Uh, they are very few in number. Uh, most of them are actually known as multinational corporations, uh, but there are certainly some you know billionaire uh, level wealth individuals who you know are also essentially at that level where uh, you know you have negotiating power essentially at the level of other sovereign countries that are out there. Um, you know, that's where most of the, uh, I would say, value and, and taxation negotiation happens right now is, uh, you know, uh, various municipalities or states uh, essentially negotiating, you know, tax breaks or, or other sort of incentives programs uh, because they know that the company will bring real economic value if it's physically located, you know, within their so-called jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, that's just, I think that's what we want to get, uh, you know, continue to lower the bar of like, what is the level of wealth and power that is actually necessary to be able to negotiate um, and you know, kind of you know, arbitrage the incentives of of different governments, whether they be you know, city, state, local, national, uh, you know, to your own benefit, so that you know, you can find the the optimal living situation for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's basically my perspective, and I think more and more people will be able to play that game when they have a money, you know, when they can move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction with their wealth intact without any, you know, any encumbrances or anything like that. And uh, hopefully, you know, I think that process will play out over many years, but hopefully it, in the short, short enough term for us to experience, it will mean, as you say, you know, more and more jurisdictions saying, Hey, we want that capital. We want your intellectual and financial capital here, you know, and improving our area and, you know, expanding our tax base to the extent that, you know, you're willing to uh, concede whatever amount. And so, you know, let's, let's try to make our rules for lack of a better term, more attractive to you. And I think, you know, there's an initial inklings of that already in certain jurisdictions, albeit small and, and, and not as easy perhaps to opt in, but I, I think that will change. Um, 
All right. Well, maybe I think we'll probably revisit some of the the things we've already discussed. Already discussed, but it'd be great. You know, the the original reason you reached out was you wanted to discuss a, a few soft fork proposals that have been bandied around over the last little while. You know, and kind of pro and con them, and just shed some light on them, perhaps generally. So, I don't know where you want to start with that, but over to you. Yeah, so I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about more recently, um, because over the past couple of years, there's been more discussion about it, but there is this concept in Bitcoin of something called covenants. And you know, you have to get at least a little bit technical to understand uh, you know, what what is a covenant. Um, hopefully, people at least understand that there's no such thing as a Bitcoin. You know, within the context of the protocol and the database, uh, the the only data structure that really exists are transactions and blocks. You know, the transactions get bundled up into blocks, and then these transactions have inputs and outputs and the inputs and outputs are all just go to other transactions. So when you, when you want to spend Bitcoin value, you have to find transaction outputs that have not been spent before and use them as inputs to a new transaction. Now, when you want to do that, um, you have to follow whatever the rules and the constraints are that have been placed on those unspent transaction outputs. So the vast majority of the time, what people are doing is they're using what we call just a single signature uh, construction. It's basically you're, you're creating the script that says, in order to be able to spend the funds that are secured by me, I need uh, proof via one cryptographic signature. And that signature has to match the public key that we are putting in this script. Very straightforward, dead simple, very easy to use. Uh, you know, what I've been doing for the past eight years is slightly more complicated. I've been helping build multi-signature Bitcoin wallets. And so these use a slightly different script, but it's the same type of construction. Basically you're saying, all right, uh, in order to spend the funds from, from this particular address, you need to provide say, two signatures and they must correspond to any two of these three public keys so you know still easy to think about um but all you're really doing is you're you're able to define you know what is the locking and unlocking mechanism on any bitcoin that are being deposited to an address that you generate so this is this is essentially an operation that is only good one time and it's only good for you know when you want to spend from uh, a bitcoin address what we're missing though is an ability to place uh, restrictions on where the bitcoin goes after it's spent uh, that's something that we we just we simply don't have the ability to do right now and and that is what a, a bitcoin covenant really means at a very high level it means it's just a mechanism to enforce conditions on future bitcoin transactions so this is a very high level generic thing there have been almost a decade's worth of different covenant proposals out there and uh, they actually started off uh 
almost jokingly, and then they, they've become more serious. And over the past few years, the sort of volume of new proposals that has been coming out has been increasing. And we even had a new one come out uh, just a few weeks ago called OpVault. But it's a really complicated uh, space to think about because these proposals are all over the place. Um, they have all types of, of different attributes and complexities and, and trade-offs. Uh, some of them are really generalized and, and can almost get to the point of being, you know, quote unquote, Turing complete. Uh, others are really restrictive and they only offer a very small set of functionality. You know, some of them are like a one-time uh, future restriction but others can actually be recursive, which basically means that you can continue to apply that restriction uh, really for an arbitrary period of time uh, going forward in the future. Uh, and then just the implementations, uh, you know, some of them are these uh, soft forks that are, are based on like new um, codes and the scripting language that ha would have to be added. Uh, others are, using slightly more hacky, you know, signature based mechanisms. There are even, there are ways to do covenants right now without any changes at all to Bitcoin. However, they involve whole sets of, of complexities and trade-offs in and of themselves, where basically you end up having to pre-sign this huge set of transactions that it's basically uh, defining all of the different logical paths that the Bitcoin could be spent to, you know, you can kind of thinking, think of it as like you're drawing a map and saying, you know, you, you could go to this address, but if this happens, you could go to that address. And um, while, you know, it, it technically enables some interesting security models and functionality, it's just, it's kind of a non-starter because you end up having to, create and sign all of these transactions uh, you have to do you have to redo the whole process every time you get a new bitcoin deposit and also it's it's very brittle because you you have to decide ahead of time a lot of different attributes like the fees that the transactions are paying and the addresses that they're going to and so you know if you're if you think about setting up this really complicated logical flow of value for your Bitcoin and you want it to be a long-term thing, like maybe you want the Bitcoin to sit there for five years and not have to go through that flow for a really long time. Well, five years from now, let's say you, you, you pull all of that uh, logic and all of these transactions that hopefully you haven't lost in the meantime, and you pull them out and you start going through it. Um, you have to, you have to hope that, you still have access to all of the private keys for those other addresses. You have to hope that the like transaction fee rates on the network aren't you know so high that you can't even get them confirmed. You know, it's it's just a really gnarly mess of complexities, and and that's why we've had a, a decade of different uh, proposals come out and and people basically saying, well, you know, this is problematic because of of X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, it all kind of comes to a head, I think, especially with, with the most recent proposal, which I kind of see as a, it's taking a different perspective on this whole thing. Um, and basically this is the op vault proposal. 
But I think OpVault is very interesting because of how simple it is. Uh, it's it just it's very easy to to reason about. It's also just a lot more flexible. It doesn't require you to create uh, pre-signed transactions, and um, and like I said, it's uh, it's very specific in that it's not a generalized covenant proposal. It's just uh, giving vaulting functionality, and you know to to get technical, like what is a Bitcoin vault? Uh, yeah. The the general definition of a Bitcoin vault is that you're using, it's a specific type of covenant transaction that enforces a time lock on the transfer of the control of funds. Um, but it also en enables this immediate transfer of funds into a recovery wallet if something goes wrong. So you know, diagrams tend to be really helpful with all of this, but basically the idea is you, you put your money in the vault and then you can at any time uh, try to initiate a withdrawal, but that initiation, uh, it's a, you know, it's a Bitcoin transaction that goes out to the whole network. So, you know, anyone who's listening to the network knows about it, but the, the funds then have to sit there for some period of time that you've determined before they can then be withdrawn to an arbitrary address. So it's, it's giving you, uh, it's basically giving you time to be able to react to a potential compromise to your wallet and and this is this is really the i think the missing side of bitcoin security is that right now we don't have a way to react to a compromise like if your wallet's compromised i'm sorry but your money's gone and your only real option is to hope to like talk to chain analysis companies and hope that the attacker you know sends it to a kyc exchange where they can uh you know get caught by law enforcement but uh, the, the result of that is that people like myself and all of these other security companies in the space, we've spent the past decade building higher and higher you know, walls, so to speak, uh, more and more proactive security to prevent the attacker from you know, getting over the wall in the first place, because we know that once they get over the wall, it's game over. And um, there, you know, I, I think this almost comes full circle to, you know, Talk, talking about what we said very early on, you know, people come into this space and they have certain expectations based upon other systems that they're familiar with. And, you know, one of the really common objections that I think you see newcomers in the space make is, well, you know, if someone takes my money, if there's an unauthorized use of my Bitcoin, I can't go to anybody to get a chargeback, right? And it's not like credit cards are so much better because if something goes wrong, you have protection. And, um, you know, enabling a like a, a simple chargeback mechanism in the Bitcoin protocol that, you know, involved some sort of third party authority is that's obviously never going to happen. That's that just like violates one of the, the most uh, fundamental aspects of Bitcoin. Like we, we cannot have a way for uh, people to be making arbitrary decisions about you know, who is and is not a scammer or a thief or, or whatever. That, that just devolves into political bullshit. So I, I see a vaulting proposal as a way to enable chargebacks, but it's defined you know, by 
the user. It doesn't require on any trusted third parties. It doesn't compromise any of the principles of the protocol because this is something that's fully self-contained within the own user's sovereignty. A lot there to uh, to comment on, but just a, a question on the the vaults themselves. Like, so it sounds like this is you know primarily the implications are around security. This particular proposal um, yeah. would not. Do you think to what extent do you think even were this proposal implemented, if it was an option, it would you know the nefarious characters would find ways to climb that wall as well. Like knowing how it works and knowing. Yeah, I mean, would it not be the case that, you know, perhaps it would just be a temporary solution and, you know, the means would be discovered or the techniques be deployed to, you know, account for that additional step? I mean, would that be a possibility yeah. or am I seeing it? Yeah, yeah. so, right you know, now? it's not a silver bullet. Um, there is no such thing as a silver bullet in security. And that's because there's this fundamental property that anything that can be owned, anything that can be secured can be compromised, you know, can be stolen. So, um, you know, like I said, I think what this is giving us, it's if implemented correctly, because, you know, there's always a big caveat. It's always possible to do things in a very stupid, naive way. Um, but if implemented correctly, this is additive to your security model, by which I mean, um, you know, when we're constructing super high security uh, Bitcoin uh, wallet architectures, uh, to give an example of like what we do with with Casa with with multisig, it's not just merely the fact that there are multiple keys. Uh, there are a million ways to create a really stupid multisig setup. You know, we've seen people who are technically using multisig, but like all of their keys are in their house. You know, you've 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 created a single point of failure there. Um, so, you know, like, if you want additive security, what you need is you need to have different types of security, as many different types of security as you're comfortable with. Uh, and, and you need to kind of think of these as layers. Um, this is a sort of defense in depth strategy. This applies to really any type of security mechanism for anything, you know, physical or security uh, or uh, digital. Um, you know, if you think about like how, um, high security physical places are set up, whether it's a bank vault or a prison or even, even your own you know, personal home security, you don't just have one line of defense. You, know, you don't like only have a door with a lock on it. Uh, you know, you pr preferably want to have multiple different layers, different perimeters. You, know, you want a fence out there. So first someone has to get past the fence and and then you know maybe they have to get past a dog uh and they have to get past you know other like electronic surveillance and and alerting systems mm -hmm. and and that's because you understand that any one of these things can be compromised but the likelihood that many of them are compromised in a short time frame especially without you noticing it just becomes less and less likely and also there's you know the concept of uh positioning yourself as a hardened target if your security is obviously an order of magnitude greater than your neighbors, then you know a criminal who is looking for an opportunity is just gonna walk by and, and go to the weaker target where the uh, return on their investment calculation is gonna say, I'm much more likely to you know, get away with this and, and be pleased with the result. So yes, uh, you know, 
even with a uh, you know reactivity uh, added to your security model, it's you know still technically possible for things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually, I think, appropriate. You can you can actually look at the way Lightning Network works uh, because this is a very similar type of game theory that you're setting up. It's not exactly the same, but the idea, you know, with Lightning Network, um, it needed to have reactive security to work at all. And the reason for that is because Lightning is a a, a protocol where you are online all the time and you you're constantly in this dynamic environment where things are updating and you're you're exchanging transaction data with other peers that you don't trust and so it's it's always possible that one of your counterparties could try to screw you you know by uh publishing uh, a stale transaction state that would essentially give their money back to them take it away from you. And so in order to have a, a higher level of confidence that that won't happen, because you, you can't prevent it from happening because it's a fundamentally required aspect of the network to be trading these messages back and forth, you have to create a set of game theory that penalizes the person to prevent them from even trying in the first place. And and so that's why you end up, you know, running watchtowers you end up listening on the network for these transactions and you've created as a part of that message passing back and forth you know updating your htlc as your hash time lock contracts uh you have you're holding in reserve these penalty transactions so your counterparty knows if they try to screw you you're actually going to screw them even harder and it's a completely automated uh game that uh nobody wants to play that game uh now you know theoretically you know there's still some things that can go wrong there you know if your lightning node goes offline and it stays offline for you know a week or several weeks then you know you're no longer actively scanning for that you could theoretically you know be subject to loss there now off the top of my head you know even when that happens we don't see a lot of uh of theft happening and that's because your counterparty, even if they know that you're not online, they don't know whether or not there are any third-party watchtowers that are just passively listening out there that are still holding that penalty transaction in reserve, just waiting for you to try. So, uh, you know, with a, a on-chain vault uh, functionality, it's the same type of thing, uh, except you know, instead of the attacker losing money that they've committed they just immediately lose access to whatever they have stolen from you or you know started to try to steal from you so you know if you're not running your watchtowers if you're not paying attention you know whatever that time frame is then yes it's still possible the attacker could get through the first step the funds sit there and then that time lock expires and they they continue on so you know you you do still have to have diligence but you know this is not and and it should not be the only uh line of defense in your setup you should still have really good proactive security mm-hmm. uh but this reactivity is just additive it gives you a whole new uh layer of security that an attacker has to deal with right i think you know we mentioned the comment earlier about this ongoing process of defining Bitcoin, right? And I think it's fair enough to say that a developer that would put forward a proposal like this is saying, I think Bitcoin should be 
what it is now plus this. And that's my definition of Bitcoin, or at least that's what I'm proposing. You know, what do you think about it? Um, and I think, you know, I, that's probably has for a long time been the tension and probably, you know, for a long time will be. It's like, well, well, you know, what do people think Bitcoin is and what do people want Bitcoin to be? Do you want it to be as simple uh, as possible and to have everything else be not on the protocol level, like, you know, what you guys are doing at CASA in terms of security and 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 whatever else? And how much do you want to integrate into the protocol level? And how do you even make those decisions? You know, how do you how do you decide if a given proposal is quote unquote worthwhile to implement and what are the trade-offs in doing so and saying like well you know cool it's a it's a neat idea probably has some applications what are the trade-offs and not just in the trade-off in making that in, in implementing that proposal let's say let's say it's a popular one and it goes through but what are the trade-offs in normalizing change itself in having change be something that is increasing frequency let's say um and so i mean you know maybe and obviously this is kind of part of the ossification sort of argument, but what are your, yeah, what are you, what are your impressions? What is Bitcoin to you? Um, mm -hmm. What do you think it, its potential is to be and how much of, what is your philosophy in terms of how simple or complex things should be on the protocol level versus, you know, services and, and things on top of the protocol or outside of the protocol? Yeah, I mean, it's really complicated because I think that there are quite a few different principles that if you want a proposal to be generally accepted or if you want it to be non-controversial, then you, you can't be breaking any of the you know, inviolable principles of Bitcoin. And so, you know, like one of those is you know, censorship resistance. Um, you know, everybody I think knows about the, you know, sort of money supply limit. I think in general, like breaking changes and hard forks are, are too controversial uh, to, to get through. Um, unless, of course, there's some sort of other imminent looming threat, uh, which may happen someday. <laughs> but um, I think with covenants, one of the reasons that they have been more controversial and like there hasn't been a proposal that has been uh, widely accepted is because a lot of them are uh, generic enough that they're they're just more difficult to reason about and and when the developers find them difficult to reason about they worry that there are hidden edge cases in there you know hidden uh vulnerabilities that you know if it got deployed on the main network uh could cause catastrophe now um i think one of the more tangible um pushbacks to uh, covenants, especially recursive covenants that can sort of self-propagate themselves, uh, is that if you're not careful, it, it certainly is possible to create a situation that could affect the fungibility of Bitcoin. So that's, you know, another inviolable property, I would say, is that, you know, we don't want there to be sort of different classes of Bitcoin. Though this can get into a kind of gnarly gray area as well as like, what does fun fungibility actually mean? <laughs> um, but I think that a sort of a worst case scenario would be, of course, uh, some sort of gov um, some sort of covenant uh, that was added by you know some sort of 
third-party authorities, whether it's like regulated exchanges or something, or basically, you know, something where there's a, you know, authoritarian entity that is, is adding in these like malicious recursive covenants that would basically allow them to arbitrarily uh, affect the, the fungibility of Bitcoin. So there, there's Which definitely might, some potential You might problems. say like, you know, chain analysis companies these days are perhaps trying to do that. Now, the extent to which they can be successful in that, especially, you know, over the course of several transactions, you know, maybe maybe they can't, um, maybe their influence on fungibility over the course of time is not, uh, you know, absolute, is not forever, for example. But is that what you mean? Because, you know, of course, there's examples of exchanges rejecting certain UTXOs because they may be flagged by a chain analysis company of having been involved in a, a coin mix or some nefarious activity. And you're suggesting that were this done on a protocol level with something like a covenant, that would be, that taint would be held in perpetuity more, more um, absolutely. So, uh, this is where it gets really difficult to talk about covenants because there's so many different ways of doing it. But suffice to say, like there would be ways to implement covenants that would enable uh, third parties to to add in restrictions that you don't even know about and right. until they decide to reveal them. And so that's certainly a, a dangerous area that you know we want to avoid. I think that would be too controversial to get into the protocol. But you know talking about fungibility, uh, you know there are covenant constructions that would vastly improve fungibility. Uh, some of them would enable batched lightning channels. That's both you know, scalability and I think fungibility improvement. Uh, some of them would enable uh, functionality called coin pools, which would be kind of like a supercharged coin mixer. Um, and then like there's other sort of L2-esque things like space chains and state chains. Uh, you know, they're, they're lightning-esque. Uh, that could also be enabled and would, you know, improve the privacy uh of people that are using them, but you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a complex uh, sphere. It's like it's I think it's unlikely that we're going to see a generalized covenant proposal that is sort of a kitchen sink proposal get through just because of all of the complexities. Hmm. Maybe it's maybe it'd be useful to uh, illustrate two extremes of of the spectrum, and you know, get your take on where you might fall. Uh, and so on on the one extreme, let's say, and Perhaps these people, these developers that are, you know, um, putting out these proposals, and as I said, you know, kind of in doing so, proposing how Bitcoin might be defined, how you, you know, what Bitcoin should be, um, they're they're saying, you know, Bitcoin should be this plus this plus, you know, but a lot there's obviously a lot of people out there that say Bitcoin is fine the way it is, and in in your haste to implement new protocol features that ostensibly would accelerate adoption and make the user experience better. Um, one, you're taking on too much risk. And two, perhaps you're just being impatient. Perhaps what it is today is absolutely sufficient for it to become, you know, dominant global money, but it's only been 13 years or whatever. And so, you know, these things take time and be more patient. So that's, you know, that's the ossification end of the spectrum. And then over here, it's just, you know, this is um, programmable money and we should be programming it because of that and everything backwards compatible. But if we think there's a, you know, a, a legitimate implementation to be made, why not? Why not do it? It's stupid not to, we can make this thing so much better. Those are two ends of the spectrum. Where would you say, 
you fall on that spectrum and and you know what is your thinking or, or justification behind being in whatever whatever place you are yeah i mean i think that most of the developers in the space would generally agree that ossification is inevitable i mean we have decades of experience with internet protocols that shows this to be true it's 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 almost like a physics problem right is like once a protocol gets sufficient adoption and momentum um, the ability to change it uh, at least in a, a, a non-backwards compatible way diminishes and so that's why you know things like smtp you know the email protocol haven't changed in many decades because Believe me, you know, working at an email provider for a decade, uh, there are plenty of things that could be improved with the email protocol, uh, but it's just not feasible uh, to try to make those changes at the protocol level. Now, I I gave a keynote presentation last year and, and wrote a lengthy article actually of my own perspective on the history of email as a protocol. And, you know, I would argue that there, in terms of the like total design space of a protocol and what it can do, if you're trying to maintain a protocol to be as decentralized as possible, I think one question you have to ask is, if we don't change the protocol, are people going to uh, choose convenience and centralization in order to get these things uh, because they're not happening at the decentralized level. I think that's one risk that a lot of people can easily overlook. As a technologist, I am I'm certainly against the idea of purposefully ossifying the Bitcoin protocol at this point because there are still quite a few improvement proposals out there that I think would be value adds and can be done and implemented in such a way that they don't cause harm to other users who don't care about those features. You know, I think that you do need to take the uh, sort of do no harm approach. And I think that's generally the case if you consider that the way that the you know, quote unquote governance and consensus of the Bitcoin network, it's, it's a, you know, it's rough consensus and running code. And, and, and rough consensus, I mean, it's not democracy. It just means that for any given change that is, you know, consensus change that, you know, affects really anyone who wants to validate all of the rules of the network, um, you know, they, there should not really be any unresolved reasonable objections to making that change and so i think reasonable objections usually mean that someone has found you know some sort of harm that that change could cause i i think about you know sometime in the future when instead of i mean i don't know how many people how many so-called real bitcoiners there are in the world today and I, i've seen statistics like 150 million people hold some bitcoin but i imagine that includes like your ten dollars on Coinbase, and you know that sort of demographic. You know the 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 people for whom this is, they see the 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 revolutionary potential of this, and they're you know they're basically all in, if not all all in financially, but kind of all in, you know, ideologically perhaps, uh, is probably a way smaller uh, number. Now, in in the case of making upgrades, that's probably beneficial. You have like more eyes on what's going on, and people are very vested in into this. But if we imagine a future where Bitcoin is again 
kind of becoming global money. And so there's, you know, a billion people just take for granted that Bitcoin is what it is in terms of money that they need and it works. And how do you see the the upgrade process unfolding when there's so many more people using and relying on Bitcoin, but, you know, uh, that rough consensus process is, I mean, what does that even look like when Bitcoin has a billion daily users or, you know, even more? Like, how do, how do you see the evolution of the upgrade process going in as we as we grow, I guess, is the question. Well, yeah, I mean, it in the sense that, you know, it is a an open source collaborative project like this was one of the things that initially drew me to Bitcoin as well that, that I didn't mention is that, um, you know, I had never thought about the operation of money before. I never really thought much about econ. You know, I took econ 101, but that was about it. Um, and once I started thinking about money as this uh, abstract concept, you know, I, I truly believe that you know, money is just this agreement between people that something has value and you use it, you know, exchange and store value. You, you have to agree upon it. There's a million different reasons why you may agree upon one thing or another, but, um, you know, assuming it's not a uh, a monetary system that's imposed upon you, uh, you know, sort of free market money is is something that has attributes that are, are useful and therefore valuable as money. So, it, you know, it makes sense uh, if you want, I hate to use the word fair, but if you want a monetary system that, you know, is is not you know corrupt and easily manipulated, then it needs to be an open source project because what that fundamentally means is that anyone who cares enough can contribute. Uh, and so you know I think that there will be a natural evolution. You know as Bitcoin goes mainstream, you already basically alluded to. You know the vast majority of people aren't going to care enough to actually contribute to uh, the evolution of Bitcoin, but um, the great thing about you know open systems is like no one has to ask permission to contribute. Um, you know this is not a system that is manipulated behind closed doors by a small uh, cabal of people who you know issue their proclamations about what levers they're going to pull this week. Mm -hmm. um, you know if you care enough, and you know probably the people who care enough will mostly be the early adopters who are more incentivized uh, to care enough. Uh, then you know you you will contribute, but you know what does contribute contribute even mean? Um, uh, you know there is the sort of you know organic uh, mesh network of, of all of these different communications platforms where you know the Bitcoiners are coming together to you know, talk about and discuss. Uh, uh, create memes. I mean it's it's all related. Uh, mm -hmm. is that, you know, anyone who, who cares enough, they will contribute in their own way and it doesn't have to be technical by any means. Yeah. I guess one of the things I meant by that question is already there's a lot of deference to the so-called experts, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, not everyone is capable of understanding every little nuance about how Bitcoin currently functions on a protocol level, nor the, the technical details and consequences or implications of proposals. And so, you know, there's a lot of deferring to the experts and that becomes an increasingly small group. And then, you know, like this so-called rough consensus ends up just being, you know, a lot of people deferring uh, to 
people that they think know better than them. And, you know, things kind of happen in that way. And I guess the the crux of the former question, the prior question was, um, I don't know, does that become a risk at scale where so many people are just deferring to others for, you know, knowing what to do and that kind of developing a potentially deleterious uh, or causing a deleterious situation where not enough people are uh, sufficiently aware of the implications and potential right. risks of certain changes um, and therefore, you know, things degrade or more risks emerge. And perhaps, you know, this is almost certainly part of the reason why, and I'm not saying exclusively, but a lot of those people might, as a result of that, defer to simplicity just because they say, look, I don't, I don't see the full picture. I don't know all the details, but this thing is so damn important that I'm just like, keep it simple, stupid, right? Like just let's not shake the boat and let's keep it minimal. You know, I'm happy with what, how Bitcoin is currently defined or how I'm currently defining Bitcoin. And so why invite the risk? Um, yeah. So what, what do you make of that kind of that circumstance where there's so much deference to people that are um, by people that don't know all the details to people that presumably do Just to say you know nothing what? of the, like the value judgment question. It's, it's more a matter of the specifics, the specific details. That's, that's not a unique phenomenon by any means. I, I believe that you could point to any mainstream open source project and, and show that the same thing has happened. Um, now, you know, there are dangers in that. And I, I think even at a broader level, uh, this kind of gets back to the relationship between uh, uh, enterprises and the open source projects. Like there's an untold level of wealth and, you know, large swaths of our capitalistic society that is built on the foundation of free and open source software. And there is definitely a problem with uh, the wealth not quote unquote trickling down, uh, or in this case, it would be the the resources not being contributed back to the foundation, and this has resulted in some scary incidents. Um, you know, there's it's kind of an inside joke amongst a lot of, of the you know, cybersecurity community that some of the most valuable and like important security projects out there are maintained by one dude in his garage. And so examples of this are like, I think there have been several like SSL vulnerabilities over the past few years that have been found uh, and only after they've been in the wild for quite a while. And the, you, know, you can make a strong argument that the reason that these vulnerabilities weren't found and patched uh, a lot faster is just due to the, the absurdly low level of resources that are being contributed to these projects. You know, they're, they're not receiving um, resources commensurate with the, the level of importance that they are giving to the entire world. Uh, you know, that's, that's a sort of, that's a related but whole other problem. Um, I would say right now that is not a problem in Bitcoin. Um, there are a decent number of uh, organizations out there that have provided funding and stuff. I would say the, the bigger problem, and this might be changing because of the bear market, but the bigger problem is generally uh, you know, getting engineers into contributing to, to Bitcoin and, and keeping them there. Um, because you know, burnout is certainly a problem. I mean, this is um, 
ostensibly one of the most adversarial open source projects to contribute to. And especially if you are a, uh, a known identity, you know, you, you're not contributing under a pseudonym, you, you expose yourself to a decent amount of, of attack, you know, whether it's digital or, uh, or even uh, physical um, due to people making assumptions about, you know, your own personal wealth. So um, there's a lot of, of both common and uncommon aspects to the sort of the issue of, of protocol development in this space. Um, we definitely, I would, I would certainly like to see, you know, more, um, outreach programs. You know, we do have things like summer of code. I think a few other, uh, programs out there that are kind of like reaching out to university students. Like it's, we need more fresh blood, um, you know, I also want to see more diversity. Uh, you know, that's going to trigger a lot of people. But, um, you know, Bitcoin is supposed to be the money of the world. Um, you know, we don't want it to be like solely developed by the, uh, you know, high tech, you know, United States and, and you know, European, you know, wealthy countries. Um, I think it is cool. And I think we've seen more African developers jumping in recently. That's great to see. You know, I, I, basically what I mean is like, I want to see you know, people from all cultures, languages, backgrounds, um, because they will bring their own perspectives with them and they will be able to contribute. And uh, diversity, I see diversity from a security standpoint as a great strengthening factor. Because like one of the reasons that open source works is because you have many different sets of eyes with different perspectives that are like looking at the code and trying to find weaknesses. So, you know, more diversity in terms of the eyeballs that are contributing to Bitcoin is only going to make it stronger. And once again, with the trigger word, I think fairer, uh, you know, because we're going to just have more people's perspectives and a better, better understanding of, you know, what is this quote unquote ideal money uh, from a global perspective. Right. What, what's wrong with fairness? Fairness is a good word, isn't it? The, the protocol is fair, treats everybody the same. I think maybe the... Uh, I mean, in today's cultural landscape, I, I, I probably agree that it's been bastardized and yeah. has been misused and misplaced. But as a, as an ethic, almost, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fully on board. Let let people sink or swim I guess on their I would, merit. I, I feel better saying neutral, you know, credibly neutral, rather than fair, because you know, fair, like you said, it, it has been bastardized to to mean things about you know, like equity uh, in in outcomes. So yeah, yeah, I I, I see your point about diversity of you know perspective basically because you know you want as many perspectives to brought to bear on something so important as possible so that you know people can see the pitfalls people you know different people's ideas again i think that that term has been bastardized in today's culture and the way in which it's been applied or the way the way the manner in which it's been attempted to be imposed let's say has just been you know completely insane you know i think the way that you cultivate the benefits of, of diversity is you just, you allow anyone, like you said, I mean, an open source project, you allow anyone who wants to contribute to find, to be able to contribute on equal terms with anybody else, not, and based on their merit, right? Not that you treat everybody the same, but you say like, you know, the door is open. And now once you, you, you walk through the door, then you prove yourself in whatever way you can. And I agree, like, uh, Abu Bakr from Kala and, um, 
Bernard from Bitnaber are friends. I'm like, I just, I love what they're doing over there. And Abu Bakr has, and, and Kala is basically funding and, and training developers. And and he himself just kind of came into the space, was like, wow, this is cool. And taught himself how to be, you know, a, a protocol a protocol developer. And I think uh, I'd love to see that. When you were speaking, um, one of the things that came to mind is, I wonder had, because the, I'll kind of preface this by saying, is it a risk that corporate interests are sponsoring protocol developers? Now, on on the face of it, you say, no, this is great. You know, these protocol developers are being compensated for the work, and and that's been a long time coming. But had that been the case, let's say in the New York agreement, would that have changed things? Would would so much corporate influence and those corporates saying, look, we really want this vault thing. This is something a change we want, and now developers have more of a financial tether um, and a financial consideration, a conflict of interest, you might say, with um, the people that support them. Now, I know on the surface, all of that is attempted to be hand-waved away. No, you don't have to do anything you know, regarding us. But in the real world, if someone is paying you um, and you do something that they don't like, there's at least a chance that they stop paying you, if not now, sometime yeah. in the future. So do you think the 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 corporate versus, let's say, the the crowdsource funding of developers, which I would say is in a different category, you know, people just tipping or sending sats or whatever, is uh, any degree of of threat now or in the future? Uh, I don't really see corporate funding as a threat. I mean, I do think it is important that if you're a corporate funded open source developer that you need to have a a contract clause that basically says that you know there's no strings around how the corporation directs your work. Um, you know, even if there's not, there's backstops. I mean, this is part of the the security model of really both the the Bitcoin core code base, uh, you know, any other Bitcoin code bases. Um, is you know as we said very early on there's no automatic update mechanism there there's like there's a multi-layer you know ring defense system in place uh you know the first is you know sure you can pay a developer to to write up uh bad or malicious code and they can even propose it uh then the first ring of defense is that you know the the maintainers of the repository look at it and, and they're they just reject it and say no this is ridiculous um, now, you know, you could then say, okay, well, what if uh, all or many of the maintainers of the repository are compromised and the code gets in? Well, that's where the, uh, you know, there's no automatic update mechanism comes into play. And the fact that many other people like myself will be watching. And even though we don't have, you know, any say over the actual code in the repository, we can, you know, sound the alarm and say, hey, uh, everybody, we need to migrate, you know, to a new code repository because this organization has been compromised. We can't really trust what they're doing anymore. You know, that I think that would be a huge blow to the project in general, you know, uh, almost analogous to having to like nuke the mining algorithm if there was some like state sponsored 51% uh, denial of service attack against the network. Um, but, you know, the, basically the, the point is, you know, this is why Bitcoin is anti-fragile is because the the points of control as they were are so spread out. They, you know, the, the end points are the individual users, um, well, the ones who care enough to, to run their own node and, you know, to validate the rules of the network. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the risks of upgrades and let's say they get rough consensus and they're implemented like 
I, I alluded, I mentioned before that in my view, and I, I don't know how to quantify this risk, but if we're dealing with something who much of whose value is derived from its absoluteness in Bitcoin, let's say, you know, one of those things being 21 million hard cap, then even the, the frequency and the normalization of change itself could potentially be a risk to that. Because on the one hand, you're saying it gets a lot of its value from, from being an absolute and perhaps the most consequential absolute that you know we, we have available to us. But on the flip side, if changes become not something that are done you know, with extreme caution and less and less into the future, but more and more into the future, how much does that increase the risk that at some point in the future, one of those changes might be affecting that thing that we previously held to be absolute? Uh, and so both from that perspective, but also from the perspective of the technical uh, changes and the risks associated with them themselves for any given upgrade, in your mind, what are they? And how should we be thinking about them? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you're going to find many people say that like we should accelerate uh, changes or like we should no longer have you know extremely conservative uh, peer review process. I think that's all important. Uh, that, you know, we need to approach this really from a you know a mission critical engineering perspective you know it, it needs to be uh aerospace engineering not you know web app engineering level of uh thoroughness mm. and um you know it's it's fine if things take a year or, or multiple years uh, to be sufficiently vetted but you know this kind of also goes back to the whole point that we've said about like we're still you know understanding what Bitcoin is um, and and ossification in general uh, is that you can never be a hundred percent sure that Bitcoin is what we think it is and I think a good example of that would be BIP forty two and uh, BIP forty two was when Peter Willa discovered or it may have been discovered by someone else but he fixed uh an issue in the bitcoin supply because it turned out that bitcoin was not capped at 21 million coins uh it turned out you know if you went uh, enough centuries into the future there was an overflow bug and the uh supply subsidy would actually restart at 50 bitcoins per block and and it would do that in perpetuity you know every few centuries mm -hmm. uh so you know there, there may very well be other, you know, aspects of the Bitcoin protocol, other, you know, edge cases that have not yet been fully sussed out. I think there are one or two known edge cases that are currently enough decades away, like with some, I think, timestamp overflow mm -hmm. issues that will have to be addressed and may require a hard fork, but also, you know, it's, it's, it, it does seem like, like with enough time and creativity, almost anything can be soft forked, but that's, you know, part of the discovery process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but I, I think those would fall, those two examples fall more into the category of like fixing things that, uh, well, fixing problems. Whereas, you know, I guess the, the crux of my question is when we're considering again, answering this question, what should Bitcoin be? And some people have proposals in, in, in terms of what it should be like this vault proposal, let's say, just to use a, a, like a specific example, what do you think the risks, what are the risks of, of implementing something like this? What, what, when we consider this, when we can, cause 
you, you might consider, as we were just saying, like, okay, the vault thing sounds interesting, but look, it's it's not enough of a value add. It's not enough of a benefit to to go through the process of of implementing it. But necessary to answer that question for anyone to have a you know an informed view on that. I think you have to know, like, well, what are the even if the downside is, well, whatever the down, whatever the upside is, I want to know what the downside is so I can make a, you know, determine a risk benefit analysis on on any given action. So what what in your mind are the risks associated with softworks? And let's for this case say not, you know, ones that are fixing things that we already presume to be implemented, but things that, you know, additional features, let's say. What are the risks? Uh well, I mean, <sighs> Any consensus change comes with the risk of introducing some sort of uh, you know, consensus failure. And, and so, you know, uh, I think you know, the last real consensus failure that we had was back in 2013. Uh, and, and, you know, and that actually occurred as a result of a change that wasn't even uh, understood to be a consensus change, right? Uh, it was it was under it was uh, it was due to a change in like the database that was being used by Bitcoin Core and the sort of the the locking operational like locking count in the database uh, having a mismatch between different versions of the software, um, but. You know, consensus failure can can happen at at basically anywhere in the stack. Like this is certainly one of the things that the protocol level developers are extremely worried about because there's this really weird, um, you know, it's not a paradox, but it certainly seems paradoxical that uh, Bitcoin is simultaneously arguably the most like anti-fragile thing uh at least on the internet but the flip side of this if you talk to the protocol developers the bitcoin protocol is incredibly brittle and and by that i mean that you know making changes to the protocol are highly risky because you know, even the, the consensus itself, I, I don't think anyone would say that they're like 100 uh, percent knowledgeable that they fully understand every you know, bite of Bitcoin's consensus, because, like we said, uh, consensus rules are not necessarily just the rules that are defined in the code as saying, like, this is validation rule one, validation rule two. Um, and so. I think you, can you, you see. What do you, can, you, can you expand on that point a little bit? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, okay. So, like, when you're you're looking at the Bitcoin code and in, in any of the implementations, you know, you'll find um, various classes and functions that are like, you know, validate transaction, and then it's like, you know, validate outputs, validate inputs, and, and these are these are the like well known, well defined, uh, logical rules and sanity checks that do things that basically make sure that nobody's double spending money and they make sure that nobody's you know creating money out of thin air or you know exceeding the supply schedule um but you know those are not the only rules that matter um you know basically any 
part of the code that could cause a block or a transaction to be accepted on one machine but rejected on a different machine uh that's that's problematic and, and so like for for the example of the fork that happened 10 years ago uh it was you know it was a database configuration inconsistency that caused some machines to accept some blocks but reject others um, I think more recently, like if you go look at the, um, the CVE list of, of vulnerabilities that have been introduced and then patched into Bitcoin, they tend to get introduced as a result of fairly innocuous changes. Uh, in, in many cases, it's like somebody who's cleaning up or like refactoring some code. And um, you know, it looks like the logic is the same between version one and version two. They've just, you know, made an improvement perhaps with like some efficiency. Uh, and, you know, this gets all the way through the review process and testing and so on and so forth. But it turned out that the new logic introduced a vulnerability that could get exploited. And it's just that like, it's such an edge case that there weren't enough eyes looking at the code to think adversarially and, and just and think about that edge case. So, you know, that's that's why protocol development is inherently dangerous is because we're we're taking uh, a piece of software that is, um, you know, it's you know, what hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, basically network that is, is resting on top of this software and and changing you know potentially a, a single line of code a single byte of of what is valid or invalid can you know, have catastrophic consequences right and so with that in consideration um is there any way to conceptualize i assume there's no way to quantify so how how might we conceptualize the risks associated with a given uh protocol upgrade because again, I mean, absent that, how are we to make that analysis? I mean, because Bitcoin, obviously, to many of us is, well, like the holy grail of money, right? It's a very important thing. We consider it to be an incredibly important tool for humanity, as you said at the beginning, for human freedom. And we want to see that not only survive, but propagate and exert its maximal beneficial effect, let's say. And I think that's why there's so much apprehension because if 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 upgrades are kind of a black box conceptually in terms of their risk, then it's like, well, why, why would you, you know, it's it's hard to make the decision to implement them when the risks are unknown and the thing that you're attempting to protect is so incredibly valued. So can you can you shed any more light or can you give me any perspective on how one might be beneficially conceptualizing the risks of of pro protocol upgrades, soft forks, like the ones we've been discussing? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's both a pessimistic and an optimistic way to look at it. Um, you know, the, the pessimist says we, we cannot risk anything. You know, we cannot risk even the smallest change that may introduce a problem. Um, and, and that is, I believe, you know, an argument for ossification. Um, you know, an argument would be uh, we've got hundreds of billions of dollars that's being secured on this protocol. Uh, the protocol 
in and of itself is its own bug bounty. And so you could, you could basically say that there's a, a quantification of the security or like the well-known uh, security of the protocol based on the fact that, you know, this is the bug bounty uh, if someone can exploit it and, you know, find a problem. Um, and that, you know, every time you make a change to that, you're essentially uh, whatever change you're making should have, you know, $300 billion worth of confidence behind it, right? Mm. Uh, and I don't think there's really anyone out there, any developer who's ever going to have $300 billion worth of confidence <laughs> about, about making any software changes. Because, you know, software development in general um, is usually a move fast, break things type of thing, because, you know, something breaks, okay, I mean, there may be some small consequences. In many cases, you can revert them, you can roll things back, you can write more software that cleans up whatever the mess was that you created, and you move forward. Um, it can be harder to do that, especially on a distributed network where, uh, you know, doing rollbacks or takebacks, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, are much more difficult. Uh, nothing's impossible. Um, but I would, I would also take the optimistic argument. Uh, once again, if we're just thinking about Bitcoin as an anti-fragile thing, um, the i guess the last consensus failure that happened uh that was resolved within a matter of hours um you know this is one of the final fallbacks in bitcoin's security model and that is the fact that bitcoin is backed by people and it's 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 backed by those of us who care enough to pay attention and and maintain it and and so even if there is some sort of catastrophic consensus failure you know, what does that really mean um you know consensus within bitcoin we're talking about machine consensus there is this it's this fine mixture it's both of an art and a science of of trying to divine what the machine consensus should be um, I almost see it as um, there's a sort of meta human consensus of what is ideal money. And it's just sort of floating out there. You can't really quantify it. You can maybe poke at little different aspects of it. This is what the fuck we're trying to figure out Bitcoin is, is this unidentifiable abstract idea. And we're trying, at least as developers, the developers are trying to grab pieces of that and codify it into you know, machine consensus and machine code. And the value of that is that we're automating uh, the enforcement of, of whatever those ideal consensus rules are. But what happens if the machine consensus breaks? I mean, you, you always can fall back to human consensus and, you know, there's no guarantees around what that means, but that we do know there's this multi hundred billion dollar incentive for people to figure it out very quickly if something goes wrong. So that's, I, I kind of take the, we can be more optimistic and we can take some small risks. I mean, there's also there's also risks of not ever doing anything because, you know, software is living. Uh, unmaintained software inevitably corrodes and degrades and, and, and becomes harder to operate. 
So you, you certainly can't stop maintaining the software. Um, you could stop you know, changing the consensus uh, aspects to it. But you know, I, I do believe that there, there has to be some acceptable threshold of risk if you believe that the you know, infinitesimal risk that we're taking to make a change uh, is outweighed by you know, potentially you know, huge gain in value and functionality. Yeah, well, that's exactly the, the point of my question, right? Is I agree with that if, it, if that were the case. It's, again, the, the assessment of the risk is, is determining, you know, what that infinitesimal or not infinitesimal amount actually is, you know, and, and, and as a result of having a better idea there, being able to make those decisions. Last, last two on this, and then, then we can move on. But what is your approach to making such decisions? Or if you have a heuristic of some kind, when you say you see proposals, you're like, okay, this is an interesting proposal. Is it worth taking the risk to, you know, put my support behind or, you know, whatever, um, for making a change. And again, this is entirely speculative, but what do you think would happen if, as you just said, from here on out, everything was maintained. So that living code was, you know, given sufficient life, but no, um, no functional changes were implemented from here on. And from now until the end of time, we just had, you know, digital sound money and it didn't do, you know, any, anything else, everything else was done outside the protocol level. I know those are two separate questions, but, uh, so maybe go with the, um, how you make assessments of different changes first, and then uh, this, this, uh, potential future. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's about uh, complexity and usability. Um, so, you know, for example, with a number of the other covenants proposals that have come up in the past few years, I could see the value that they offered. But the, the reason that I, I generally didn't find them interesting was because I either felt that it was so complicated that... Uh, almost nobody would use it. And therefore, even if it's a high theoretical value, the actual practical value just wasn't there. Um, and, and also, you know, the, the complexity in many of them was generally uh, such that I felt like it was difficult for me to quantify uh, the, the risk just from um, what could go wrong at the protocol level uh, trying to validate you know much more complicated uh, operations um, so you know when I saw the the op vault proposal and I read the white paper I was like you know what I can grok this on the first time through it's extremely simple and straightforward I can see the risks of implementing it poorly and I feel confident that like there aren't other like looming edge cases out there and and then you know looking at the discussion on the mailing list as well i noticed like the general response tended to be much more constructive and, and just being like oh we could make a small tweak here and there not uh, of the form of like you know this is a completely terrible idea because of this trade-off or that trade-off mm -hmm. uh and well, before I get you to go back to the second question, do you think a proposal like that is of sufficient benefit that even if people assess it like you're like, oh yeah, it's simple, doesn't seem to be a lot of risks, but knowing what we know about how these upgrades get implemented, 
do you think it offers a, an enticing enough carrot to actually go through the whole process and all the work of, of uh, getting that rough consensus and becoming implemented? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is this is interesting to me both as a security engineer uh, and as just a regular Bitcoin holder. Um, this is the type of proposal that I think is broadly applicable, not, not only to like institutions and enterprises that have huge amounts of value that they want to store, but I could see this uh, you know, being applicable to really anyone who's using even you know a single signature wallet. Uh, it would actually be, I think, really uh, helpful for decreasing the amount of resources that someone has to spend to have you know a high security bitcoin wallet because uh, basically an example uh, for like a very mainstream user-friendly application of this i think that like any single signature hot wallet just like a mobile phone app uh, would be able to implement a simple vaulting proposal like this. And it would basically be such that, sure, you know, you, you have your funds in a internet connected hot wallet, which doesn't have great proactive security, but then you can basically have your, you know, seed phrase uh, backed up, a seed phrase to your recovery wallet backed up. Uh, whether it's on metal or paper or whatever and then you know if that low security hot wallet gets compromised no big deal it just gets swept to your you know super cold storage recovery wallet right but do you think that's a sufficient benefit that it, it has any chance or likelihood of of actually being implemented or do you think it's again not sufficient carrot to motivate people to go through the somewhat messy process of, you know, garnering consensus and actually implementing it? Uh, well, you know, I, I think this goes back to one of the, the earlier things that we were talking about where, you know, one of the most common complaints, you know, pushback uh, from like the average person who comes into Bitcoin, um, it's, it's a shock because the traditional financial system is one that you know it it has all of these you know safety measures now you know all of these safety measures come at costs mm -hmm. uh, but people are used to being able to operate in an, in an environment where if something goes wrong you know you reach out to your support representative and they help you resolve it hopefully um, you know, there are entire divisions of these companies that you interact with that are devoted to doing nothing other than you know, helping their customers resolve problems. Mm -hmm. uh, Bitcoin has no support system, right? The, your Bitcoin gets moved and you don't know why or where or what happened. Uh, there's no one to go to. And, and you know, that's very scary for a lot of people. It, it is a very different security model. It requires you to be a lot more proactive and paranoid. And I think that and this is, I guess, a pessimistic uh, aspect of, of me. Uh, I, I no longer believe, uh, I'm not sure if I ever did, well, maybe idealistically, but I no longer believe that uh, a 
non-negligible number of people are going to be proactive about helping themselves. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, from a, like a market perspective, uh, people adopting Bitcoin, they're the, the, the ones who ought to be adopting it are those who have the most to gain, you know, those who are in countries or financial and monetary systems that are objectively horrible, even in comparison to the first world countries. Um, but, you know, if we want the people who do have already, you know, decent financial access and financial inclusion to, I think, be more comfortable with using Bitcoin and seeing the value in that, then you know they are going to want to have some more of the assurances that they're not going to suffer you know a single catastrophic loss. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's two two comments to that. The first one is just yeah, sure, I agree. But again, <clears throat> is that sufficient motivation uh, for this to actually for something like this proposal to actually be implemented? Because like in, in my mind, I'm just kind of thinking, knowing how how things generally go here, I'm thinking like sh I can easily see the benefit. It just doesn't seem to me that it's sufficient that it's going to motivate you know enough to actually be implemented, let's say. Um, and then what we were saying earlier, the, the argument like, well, to what degree are we just being impatient and to what degree supra, you know, external to the protocol level, with solutions like CASA or FETI or, you know, different uh, schemes around custodying 12 words or, you know, seed phrases and stuff like that. Uh, how much will they make up that debt? And then, you know, my, my perhaps more radical side of me says, I think we've, um, we live in a society today where so much responsibility has been delegated to outside entities and organizations, be they government or corporate, such that people don't own their data, they're not in control of their health, they're not in control of their freedom. You know, There's so much reliance and or adherence to rules outside of oneself that, you know, personally, I like the idea of people incrementally being more forced to take on more responsibility. And I say incrementally because, you know, as uh, I was speaking with my friend Francis uh, recently, and he said, you know, on a sinking, you don't, you don't need to motivate people to jump on the lifeboat of, of a sinking ship, you know, that kind of a dynamic. So to what mm -hmm. degree will people become motivated to overcome the existing security hurdles as circumstances deteriorate even further? And then to what degree will that inculcate a, 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 um, a renewed or perhaps altogether novel sense of personal sovereignty and responsibility? And how much will that propagate into the culture and kind of contribute to this whole Bitcoin renaissance that some of us, uh, or that I often talk about, I should say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the benefit. I guess the, I, the blunt question is, do you think it has a chance? Well, I do, um, mainly because of the response I've seen so far and, you know, the people that I've been talking to, you know, at least within the security side of community, thinking this is an interesting new tool to add to our, our tool belt. I mean, if you take a, a fatalistic hyper Bitcoinization view that, you know, I think there's general agreement that um, Bitcoin is going to do well over the long term not because Bitcoin is going to improve, but because we know that all of the other systems are going to continue to strangle themselves 
you know, shoot themselves in, in the foot and do like just economically unbelievable things uh, that, you know, that will be the incentive for people to uh, to switch to a more sound system. Um, then, you know, the question is, are there changes that can lower the entry point to make people more comfortable uh, jumping off of the boat. You know, if we agree they're going to jump off into the life raft at some point, you know, what what would make them jump off sooner rather than later and hopefully save more of their wealth? Uh, you know, that's one perspective to look at it. From an implementation perspective, you know, who are you know, who are the, the interested parties, I guess, is a, an interesting question. So, you know, obviously there's going to be a debate and development at the uh, you know, protocol developer layer of the ecosystem. But, you know, that's not sufficient in and of itself. Uh, you know, even once something gets into the protocol and gets activated, the onus is then on the rest of us uh, who are using Bitcoin as a platform to build our services, our applications on top of. And, you know, like I said, when, when I like surveyed the most recent proposal, I'm like, I could see every Bitcoin wallet out there, regardless of its hardware, software, single sig, multi-sig, I could see them all uh, looking at this and seeing this as a valuable new uh, set of functionality that would you know, be additive to what they're already offering. So yeah, I mean, that's why I do think that uh, you know, vaulting proposal that is straightforward, um, and you know, if it can be de-risked, like we said, uh, mm. uh, and non-controversial, then that the likelihood is high. Now, you know, the the history of Bitcoin governance and changes, especially post-scaling debate, has certainly been interesting. Um, people got burned out by the scaling debate. Uh, there's certainly been much slower uh, consensus changes. Um, and looking at um, Taproot's activation, I felt like people, uh, or at least you know, the interested parties and developers who were or focused on getting that through, they were, uh, making mountains out of molehills, you know, basically there were arguments about the most trivial of activation parameters, you know, not even arguments about like the actual functionality of the protocol, uh, but rather about like exactly like what should the game theory of activating be like. And, and that's, you know, this is where it's hard to say is, is this a good thing or a bad thing that mm. we don't have what I would call a well-defined repeatable activation process. It seems like every feature that gets activated is done in a different way than it's ever been done before. You know, on one hand, uh, that um, it keeps people on their toes. Um, and, and, you know, on the other hand, that may, maybe that makes it more robust by making it so that you know there's no specific actor or uh you know vulnerability that can be used to stall uh, that seems to be the main i would say the main issue that people are worried about now is that you know from the scaling wars uh we didn't understand until much later that the miners were stalling because they had a secret. <laughs> they they had an incentive 
not to have SegWit on the network because it improved their profitability with how they were manipulating nonces and stuff. And, and so ever since then, it seems like there's been a, a, just a, a level of apprehension around like, how do you make a, once again, a fair activation process that isn't going to get stonewalled because of you know, perverse incentives? Yeah, it's, it's a super interesting question because as you say, on the one hand, I mean, that kind of opaqueness makes it more difficult to potentially co-opt, right? Because there's no straight line of attack but it also makes it more difficult for the people that are participating it as, you know, honest actors to know how to participate perhaps. Um, and so I guess it remains to be seen if it's a feature or a bug, I lean towards the, perhaps the former, but uh, we shall see. And, you know, my, 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 I guess my final comment on uh, making protocol changes to accommodate certain use cases, let's say, uh, as we've been discussing with vaults, and this is definitely the more perhaps radical side of me, but I, and it's not decided, but I think it's interesting open questions to be had around these things. And this is far more from the kind of cultural, dare I say, social engineering aspect of this new emergent form of money that, that we have and how instrumental money is, but is, do we not want to be careful that we don't, on the protocol level, attempt to accommodate all of our supposed or some of our supposed deficiencies i.e perhaps our you know lack of uh degree there are inability to take full responsibility for things as they currently are uh versus having the protocol almost be a catalyst for people uh in conforming to it actually making changes in themselves that are ultimately beneficial. That was a bit wordy, but I think you get what I'm saying. Like, do we not want to, or it's not even really a question I'm posing to you, but I'm just sharing my thought that I think it's important that we think, or at least interesting that we think in those terms of like, how much do we want to change the protocol to accommodate for things that we could, and are perhaps would be more beneficial for us to have change internally rather than externally. And I think that, you know, that's an open dialogue and we'll pro probably continue to be as we, as we move forward. Yeah. I mean, so uh, there's, there's also the vision of, uh, you know, Bitcoin as a highly scalable multi-layered system. Um, and I think lightning has done a good job pushing that forward, but let's not forget that the promise of side chains has fallen flat and i'm sure there's a multitude of reasons for that uh but there is there's a big missing piece of functionality for drive like drive chains and side chains uh basically the two-way peg you know this was in the original side chains white paper in i think 2014 or 2015 uh the the original White paper was theorizing that the uh, the the, the, the sidechain-based future of Bitcoin would have all of these trustless two-way pegs, and you could peg yourself from Bitcoin to sidechain A, and even to sidechain B, and like and basically whole you know, trees of sidechains, and and each one of these could be very different and have its own consensus rules and offer all kinds of amazing functionality that people could implement without having to you know, bother anyone about changing Bitcoin's consensus. So this is almost a sort of meta discussion of everything we've said of like, you know, what if we had 
we made one final change to Bitcoin that enabled trustless two-way pegs. And then you let all the experimentation you want happen. You call them shitcoin side chains. Nobody fucking cares because it doesn't bother them anymore. No one can force them to have to pay attention to them. Uh, you know, what would the world be like if we could do that? But we can't do that. At least no one has figured out a way to do that without making at least one small change to Bitcoin's consensus. What's your opinion on such an approach? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should enable more experimentation if we can do so in a way that, you know, is is not imposing burdens and risks on the people who only want to deal with Bitcoin. Right. All right. I know you um, you got a hard stop in about 20 minutes, so uh, this will be the last topic, but I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, cover the what was for some controversy with the CASA supporting uh custody for custody solutions for eth um mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm sure that prior to making that decision or you know decision and announcement you guys knew that uh there would be a certain amount of uh blowback let's say um and i also assume that you know it was a straight up economic decision you know you guys looked yep. at the market and you said a lot of people need help with custodying their ETH and other shit coins. And, you know, we, we see that in the market. So I guess, I mean, I guess my question is, do you think, did you assess the long-term reputational damage? And if so, how, and, you know, obviously you determined that <clears throat> the income or revenue you could generate from the change was worth it. But how did you guys look at that? Because, you know, much as we might all like to say, well, it's just a technology, it's not ideology. I don't think that's an accurate representation because many of us will readily admit we came to Bitcoin because as we discussed at the beginning of this discussion, uh, conversation, because it aligned with certain uh, ideologies that you held, held, whether they be libertarianism, mm -hmm. anarcho-capitalism, you know, more freedom for every individual. So nothing in our conceptual realm is just an objective tool. It's all about how we use it. And once it enters that realm, it's in the realm of belief and ideology and also opinion and all sorts of stuff. So, and obviously I don't have to tell you that Bitcoin has become so deeply meaningful to so many people for what they presume at least it's going to provide them in terms of freedom, in terms of options, and also of course provide the world. You know, many of us would readily admit like, you know, we're kind of die on this hill sort of people because we think that this being brought to the world is such a powerful tool for human freedom and human flourishing that it's, you know, perhaps one of the most important causes. Well, I mean, I would, I would assert it's the most important cause of our generation and it might be the most important cause of any generation. And so you, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's fair or even accurate to hand wave away people that express that passion as simply being kind of like zealots or or you know Twitter trolls or whatever, because I I feel like that's not fully appreciating um, how much this is both is not just a technological tool, but is ideological and political in, in some of the most profound ways. So all that just to to preface the question of how did you guys assess making this decision and what long term implications there may be in the context of well. Let's just put it in the context of Bitcoin is probably going to survive longer than ETH, in in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, and so, yeah, well, how 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 did you guys think about making a decision 
in terms of that, in terms of, in, in some sense, legitimizing this other asset by lending support to it and that kind of stuff. Just bring bring me into the, the boardroom, as it were. Yeah, uh, we talked to people. <laughs> we talked to our own customers. We talked to our prospective customers. We, we logged all of the deals that we lost uh, because we didn't have Ethereum support. We kept track of you know, what was happening to the people who they talked to us and then they decided for another solution. And if they were willing to tell us, you know, what solution were they deciding for and what was their reasoning behind that? And so, you know, what we increasingly saw is, you know, that there's a lot of multi-asset people out there. Uh, and I wouldn't want to speculate offhand, but, you know, they're, they're probably less, you know, of the adherent uh, Bitcoin types and more of the investor types. But uh, these people, you know, especially the ones that have come in, you know, more recently in, in the last cycle, and they're just looking at this in diversifying or they're they're interested in the various apps and and utility offered by ethereum and uh, you know most of these people they also have bitcoin because they see that as another diversification they understand that bitcoin and ethereum are very different things so you know for us it was like well you know, how much money are we leaving on the table? Is it worth us to expend the research and development resources to see if we can offer the, the same type of security model, you know, this distributed hardware-based multi-sig for Ethereum? Because, I mean, I was at BitGo when we added Ethereum and I've you know, written and talked extensively about all of the problems with Ethereum. So I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of them. I don't consider myself an Ethereum expert. Uh, I've scratched the surface in comparison to the time and resources that I've put into Bitcoin. And yeah, I mean, it, it is a different platform. Of course, some people are going to say that Ethereum is hard money and all this other stuff. And I mean, I don't see it as money. I think even like the original yellow paper or the, the narrative around it was that, you know, Ethereum is gas and the gas is used to power the utility functions of this other network. So, you know, different people are going to look at it in different ways. But at, at, at a fundamental standpoint, you know, we are a key management company. You know, we're helping people take self-custody. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is the most valuable and an obvious starting point with that. But it's not going to end with digital assets by any means. We fully expect that over the long term, we're going to be much more than just a self-custody uh, company. I mean, you just like look at Noster. You know, I, I would love to see a way for us to, to, you know, start to implement, you know, sovereign social networks. Uh, you know, if 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 key and I would say that key management on Nostra is currently a very big problem, and you know, there's going to be solutions to that. Um, you know, over the long term, I think digital identity and and you know, managing identity aspects with private keys is going to be an important aspect of just people's daily lives. So, you know, you should expect that CASA is going to continue to seek out the tools that are out there and try to figure out, you know, which tools have value and demand and 
And I would say one of our big value adds is figuring out ways to improve the usability, you know, decreasing the learning curve requirements for people to manage their private keys and to be able to use those private keys to enable the functionality. I mean, this all goes back to what I set my career mission to be eight years ago is to help people improve uh, their their own security and, and, and empower themselves. And you know what? Uh, permissionless networks, uh, people are going to empower themselves and do things that other people find objectionable and offensive and stupid. And there's going to continue to be uh, really interesting interactions and clashes between different communities and tribes on social media and the, the narratives and the mimetics that uh, result from all of that. And I'm here for it. It's uh, it's a fascinating space to be in. And I also understand, you know, one thing that I've learned over the years um, as my following increased by orders of magnitude is that people who pay attention to you uh, over a period of time, they develop a mental model of you. And uh, this is actually, this is not dissimilar to what we talked about earlier of you know people developing and applying their own mental models to bitcoin well eventually over a long enough period of time you know if you are someone who is receiving a lot of attention and you have hundreds of thousands of people who have built mental models of you you're going to do or say something that shatters that mental model and that results in some sort of backlash and uh, I mean, this is not new for me. Uh, it's certainly not new for anyone who has had uh, a following is that you have to know who you are and you have to understand that there's a lot of people who don't know who you are at least fully. Mm. And that you, if you're going to continue to be a public figure and do and say things, then there will be people who get upset. And you know that's just, that's one of the realities of, you know, being a public person. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, and I think that does happen to a certain degree. And if you're the type of person that evolves and develops and, and changes over time, then, you know, you know kind of inevitably going to come up against that, at least some kind of friction if people have a more rigid uh, conception of you. Um, all right. This is the last question and, and probably uh, not a great one for 10 minutes left because it, it's, it, it's probably fairly involved, but I'll throw it at you anyways and, and see what you think. And it's, it's a, you know, a, a continuation of, of this uh, topic, but it's, you know, uh, a lot of people in the space, whether the, you know, particularly entrepreneurs, you know, that start Bitcoin only businesses, I've heard them say before, and I think a lot of the, you know, maximalists and people that are Bitcoin only would probably echo this and in saying that they feel that Bitcoin only you know, offering Bitcoin only products and services, let's say, and supporting Bitcoin is a kind of moral imperative. Um, now that's a, that's a big statement, right? Because there's a lot wrapped up in that. And yeah. uh, so I just, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you think of that statement generally. Nine minutes. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, I'm not going to be imposing my morality on other people. Um, 
you know, we all have our beliefs about like what is ethical and, and unethical. I mean, I do consider myself to be a strong proponent of the non-aggression principle. You know, I am, I'm going, and I'm a builder. I'm going to continue to build things. And, you know, some of these things will be objectionable, but for me, it's a question of, am I building something, you know, that is helping or harming people? And of course, this is a huge rabbit hole you can go down. I'm sure people will say, well, the fact that you're even facilitating, you know, Ethereum stuff, people are going to hurt themselves. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of scams and the, the whole thing, you know, is based upon a premise that's, you know, not fair and so on and so forth. Um, but people, you know, people are, whenever you give people a tool, it will be used in harmful ways. Uh, so, um, you know, me building neutral tools, this is another thing that I have to live with is understand that there are people who will use them to harm others. And there are people who will be harmed as a result of using them. Uh, you know, the, if you look at the like level of scams and and thefts and hacks and stuff in Ethereum compared to Bitcoin, I think it's you know orders of magnitude greater. Uh, mm. It's certainly a great platform for scamming people on top of. And so you know you're not going to see me going around telling people that they should be investing in or, or using Ethereum. Um, you know, this is something that the market has spoken to us about this. You know, we're not going out and trying to project onto other people what they should be doing with their wealth. And, you know, even, even if we, you know, setting Ethereum aside, uh, even just offering a Bitcoin wallet, that is going to get abused. Uh, this happened a lot, you know, when I was at BitGo. I'm sure it's happening to some extent at Casa that you know scammers are using these wallets and they're like social engineering and performing other tricks onto people, and they're they're taking that stolen money and they're they're managing it, you know, with something that I've built, and. That's something that I have to live with, unfortunately. Uh, I, you know, it's it's a lot harder for me to draw a sort of ideological line between one and the other. Even though I would say objectively, you know, Ethereum from a, a very high level view has a lot more activity. And, you know, it's it's the it's the nature of having a much more uh, feature rich, developer friendly, expressive network. It has has more good things built on top of it, it has more bad things built on top of it. And uh, you know, I try not to dwell on that too much. You know, these, these networks, they have been uh, seeded and are now uh, essentially operating at a point that, you know, they are their own thing. Uh, you know, we've, we've spent a long time talking about how it's hard to understand Bitcoin. I, I don't even really, try to understand ethereum uh and you know where it might be going uh, i know that i'm generally not a fan of the different uh, trade-offs and decisions that are made for it um but uh there 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 is no 
covering your eyes and, and saying that there isn't value there. I mean, the market has quantified that there is value. Uh, you know, you can certainly object to how that value has been accrued, but uh, you know, from a business perspective, that is a significant chunk of the market now. Mm -hmm. I knew that was a horrible last question because there's so many, uh, so many other paths I want to go down, but unfortunately we're limited by time today. Um, so Jameson, I'll let you go, man. I, I appreciate you coming on for a chat and, and signing up to, to, to do so because, um, you know, it was allowed me to ask a bunch of questions that I don't usually get to ask with someone who knows more about it than me. So I, I appreciate it for, uh, for you taking the time and, uh, any last words or anywhere you want to direct people floor is yours. Um, well, if anyone out there has not seen my Bitcoin resources, definitely check out bitcoin.page. Uh, this is one of my oldest open source projects. I think there's about 1500 educational links there. And I is that where the, uh, the seed plate reviews are? Absolutely. Are, that's one of my like, dozen <laughs> other projects. So, you know, I, I maintain that that's, that's an ongoing act of love as, you know, dealing with link rot and, and the you know, new projects coming on board and making sure that I have extensively uh, kept track of as much as possible within the ecosystem. It, it seems like but, a fun um, thing to do. Like it would be fun going through all those tests and shit. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, sort of in closing, uh, you know, I'm a, a techno optimist. You know, I, I do believe that, you know, one of the great powers of this network, even though it can uh, be quite confounding and make it difficult for people to, to understand and operate within, is the fact that, you know, it is it's distributed and made up of so many different individuals. And um, I I certainly take a lot of abuse because I've I've gotten to the point where I have a lot of attention uh, and you know the diversity of opinions of people who are paying attention to me ultimately means that I, I will offend people on a regular basis because I speak. Um, but uh, I wouldn't have it any other way and. Uh, I'm not going to be going away. So, you know, feel free to, to continue to hurl all of your opinions, both good and bad, and I'll be paying attention. Awesome. Well, look, man, thanks again, and uh, look forward to catching up sometime in the future. Thanks. Take care, brother. Bye.